somebody asked me the other evening, uh, what's a chancellor? <laughs> Chuck Swindoll is our current chancellor, and when he is asked that, he says, well, they called Hitler chancellor. <laughs> uh, that won't be the role, okay? That won't be the role. One of the great things about being a part of DTS, I'm only the fifth out of five presidents in 95 years of history. Uh, Dr. Chafer, our founding president, uh, uh, led from 1924 to the, when the school was established till he passed away in 1952. Uh, Dr. Walver took over in 1952 and led the school in the longest presidency of our history until uh, 1986. Uh, Dr. Campbell took over and in 1994, uh, Dr. Swindoll uh, came as our fourth president and then I came in 2001. Uh, one of the fun things about DTS and one of the true things about DTS is that the DNA of DTS is greater than any of its leaders. And uh, my personal joke that I tell is if the seminary could survive after Dr. Walford left, uh, it can survive after any of us leave. Uh, because he obviously, not only physically, but spiritually, theologically, was a giant of a man. Uh, but one of the fun things when I became the president, as the fifth president, uh, four of us were still alive. And unprecedented in anywhere else in ministry, and especially in theological education, all four of us had offices on the campus at the same time. Because of the camaraderie, I would not have been the president had Dr. Walver, Dr. Campbell, Dr. Swindoll, and uh, a few choice uh, council friends plus my family said, you need to do this. Uh, that camaraderie has been an incredible strength for us. And so when uh, I, a uh, little over a year and a half ago, told the executive committee my plans to uh, finish my tenure as president in uh, 2020, uh, the June 30, 2020, they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, that's really not my choice. Uh, what would you like me to do? And so uh, they uh, began to work, and uh, they've asked me to stay on. And uh, when we announced to the full board, Last October, the board uh, sent me out of the room and then brought me back in the room and asked me to be the chancellor uh, going forward, and they'd already talked with Chuck about his willingness to be Chancellor Emeritus, because when I became president, Dr. Walford was Chancellor Emeritus, Dr. Swindoll was the chancellor, and Dr. Campbell was the president Emeritus. So we had all of these emeriti folks, you know, <laughs> going around. But uh, uh, the strength of DTS has been that camaraderie and that DNA and so we plan uh, and pray that that will continue in the future as God would uh, allow. And so uh, it's a privilege to be a part of that history and that heritage. I've been skiing behind a, a pretty big boat that left a pretty big wake. And I've enjoyed that privilege. And so uh, uh, our role as chancellor uh, has nothing to do with administration. I'll have no authority. Uh, I'll have privilege. And that will be to represent the seminary in speaking and writing and uh, uh, you know, public relations as, as, as necessary and helping uh, continuity with donors, etc., that we've developed relationships with over the years. And so it'll be a support, a cheerleading role for whomever God puts into uh, that uh, position. And we're praying uh, for that process. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I, I want to talk this morning about uh, how do you stay faithful in the midst of the fray? Uh, subtitled, uh, How to Have a Christian Fight and Still Stay, stay Faithful. 
uh, it can happen in marriage, it can happen in families, it can happen at work, it can even happen in ministry, as we'll see in this passage. But I'm, I'm going to use marriage as the metaphor for most of it, but it applies across the board. I, I love the story about a husband and a wife that came into counseling after 15 years of marriage. When asked what the problem was, the wife went into this passionate, painful tirade, listing every problem that they had ever had. She went on and on, uh, neglect, lack of intimacy, emptiness, loneliness, feeling unloved and unlovable, an entire laundry list of unmet needs had endured over the course of their marriage. Finally, after allowing this to continue for a length of time, the therapist got up, walked around the desk, uh, asked the wife to stand, embraced her, and then kissed her passionately. The woman sat down stunned in a state of daze. The therapist turned to the husband and said, this is what your wife needs at least three times a week. Can you do this? And the husband thought for a moment, and he said, well, I can bring her here on Mondays and Wednesdays. (laughs) But but on Fridays, I go fishing. (laughs) In order to uh, uncover the processes that destroy relationships, Marital researchers study couples over the course of years and even decades to retrace the star-crossed steps of those who have split up since their wedding day. What they're discovering is unsettling. None of the factors that you would guess might predict couples' durability. Not, Not how much in love a newlywed couple says they are. Not how much affection they've exchanged in, in, in their relationship. Uh, It's not even how much they fight or what they fight about. In fact, couples who will endure and those who won't look remarkably similar in the early days. Yet when psychologists Cliff Notarius and Howard Markman studied newlyweds over the first decade of marriage, they found a very subtle but telling difference in those relationships. Among couples who would ultimately stay together long-term, Five out of every 100 comments made about each other were put-downs. Among couples that would later split, 10 out of every 100 comments were insults. The problem was that that gap magnified over the following decade until couples heading downhill were flinging five times as much cruel and invalidating comments at each other as happy couples. They write, and I quote, hostile put-downs, act as cankerous cells that, if unchecked, erode the relationship over time. In the end, relentless, unremitting negativity takes control, and the couple can't even get through a week without a major blow-up. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we have an experience of harmony but a harmony that's been disrupted that needs to be repaired. In in verses 4 through 7, we have how to experience genuine happiness, not not a surfacey, worldly happiness, but a deep sense of spiritual happiness. In chapter 4, 8 through 10, there is uh, Paul's instructions of how to experience holiness. And then in verses 11 to 20, Paul recounts his experiences of hardship. One of the realities that uh, was mentioned last evening by Barry 
with regard to our sinfulness is that uh, all of us still struggle with sin. And the question is, what will we do about it? Uh, life is uh, hard, and life can be happy. Uh, life can have harmony, and can it be disrupted, and life ought to be holy. A friend of Barbie's and mine who gave us an imagery a number of years ago was that life was like two rails on a train, and uh, there's a, a rail of a, a blessing and a, and a rail of suffering. There's a rail of tragedy and a rail of triumph, and uh, the, 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 the cars rock back and forth on those two rails, and as they go around turns and as they hit uh, some you know, a grade and uh, a change of, of, of grade and terrain, and it's not always equal. It's going back and forth, but it's the reality of our lives. I stand and speak this morning in a gorgeous setting, and uh, Virginia's lying in a hospital. Uh, I'm the privileged uh, recipient of a great harmonious relationship with uh, a board of directors and executive team and faculty with the seminary, and I am uh, on a couple of ministry boards that are going through some terrific issues even this morning, as I have received texts. Some being financial, some being personnel. Some being a question of future. All of that happens in life all the time. And none of us have uh, marital bliss without uh, blisters at times. And so how do we manage that? How do we live in the fray and not uh, lose our sense of faithfulness? Paul's going to give us some help. So if you look there in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it's a fascinating section, and this is the intro to the main part of what I want to talk about. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. Notice the relationships. Paul, Paul talked about people in the presence of the Lord when he gets there as his ultimate reward. He's not thinking of some cheap, uh, you, know, uh, you know, victor's crown uh, from an athletic competition. For, for him, the rewards that are most meaningful are the people that he has come to know, led to Christ, shared ministry with, and uh, they are his source of joy and crown. This is a book about joy. Fourteen times the word joy or a form of either the noun or the verb occur in this book. Notice that these people are that source of joy for him. But then he says, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And then he says, I urge Iodia and Syndike. Somebody has renamed them Iodius and Soon Touchy. <laughs> to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask that you help these women who shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. See, he wants them to stay standing and stand strong in the cause of Christ. But in the cause of Christ, even among Christian workers in ministry, even among a family with Christian partners, strife can come, and it needs to be worked through and solved. And he says, and there's a group of people that surround you that struggle for the same cause for the work of the Lord. Ironically, in verse uh, 3, there's four words, we'll not go into them in detail, but four words in that one verse start with the preposition in the Greek language, soon, which uh, by itself means together with or with. And, and, and he talks about his, uh, 
comrade, that has that preposition in it. We even comrade it together in the battle. And then when he says to help these women, he's basically saying, put them together, fix them, glue it back together. These two ladies have gotten their noses out of joint. Help them get it back together. And the very word to help means to pull it together. If I could just say it, you know, get it together. I remember when I was pastoring and we had uh, a staff member and a, a volunteer who got crosswise and uh, we had a couple of us as pastors and elders sitting in the room and I'll never forget one of our wisest of elders said this, what's it going to take for you two to get it together? It was a great question of wisdom. What's it going to take for you both to fix this thing? It's a dual responsibility. It's not his fault, her fault. It's your fault. <laughs> so how are you guys going to fix this? It was a great question of wisdom. The other term that's used here is that uh, they, they've shared my struggle. We get our word athletics from this, to, 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 to compete as an athletic, you know, uh, as an athlete together. Uh, it, it's like being on the same team. It's another term for teamwork. And then he calls them fellow workers. Four times in that verse, he's saying, you need to keep this thing together. You need to keep it together. Take a stand for Christ. Fix it. <laughs> we got another, a group of people that are involved in this struggle for the cause of Christ together. And by the way, just in case you wondered, they're all going to spend eternity together. So you better get it fixed now. All their names are written in the book of life. You can't ostracize anybody. You can't excommunicate anybody here. You can't get rid of anybody here. Amputation is not the result or the end result. Restoration is. Now, that's his setup for uh, verses 4 through 7. And so uh, what I want to do this morning is I, I want to give you four quick statements. Uh, each of them are going to have a memory word to help you remember it. And then uh, embedded in that are some, uh, some rules for having a Christian fight and surviving. Number one, in the context of struggle in the cause of Christ struggle in a context of marriage, number one, accept the challenge. Accept the challenge. In fact, he does more than simply say accept the challenge. His key word here is rejoice, one of the key words of the whole book. I love it. In the context of interpersonal conflict, he says, rejoice. Don't miss the context. Rejoice in the Lord. The object and source of joy is not that other person that you might have great joy and comfort in their love, as Philemon talks about. But ultimately, the, the object and the source of joy is the Lord himself. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. I love that phrase. It's the serious business of heaven. And Leon Bloy says that joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God in somebody's life. There's an old British ex expression, you know, when royalty is in the palace, the, uh, the flag flies over the palace. And someone has said that joy is the royal standard floating from the flagstaff of the heart, telling us that the king is in residence. I like that imagery. Can I ask you this morning, is your flag waving? Is the king resident? If he is, then joy is possible. He says, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Say it. Always. Always. Uh, rejoice just for the good things? No. 
rejoice always. Evidently, from this biblical perspective, it is a possibility, a real possibility, to have joy and to rejoice in the Lord all the time. I'm assuming that that doesn't mark most of our lives most of the time, like it ought, but it should. So a question, what are the things that cause you to lose joy? What I think about that, I think about sometimes things cause me to lose joy. Uh, an air conditioner that goes out, a lawnmower that won't start. When we were in Phoenix and uh, we had a neighbor named Chuck across the street, uh, he wasn't a believer. His wife came to Christ through Barbie's uh, uh, friendship and ministry and a uh, wonderful couple, neat guy. But, uh, you know, I'd, I'd see him out there working on his pickup and, uh, you know, and he'd be frustrated and he would look over me and uh, I had done the biggest mistake in the world, that's buy a used lawnmower. Never do that. There's a reason it's used, okay? And I'm for sale as a used lawnmower. And uh, it was yellow. It was an old yellow mower. And I would try and pull and pull in a hundred and some degree heat in Phoenix. And I was getting frustrated and frustrated. And Chuck came across the street one day and he said, Mark, knowing who I was and my standard and knowing who, he said, Mark, do you need somebody to cuss for you? <laughs> well, I didn't, but I ultimately, honestly, took a ball bean hammer and beat the thing to death. In, in my rage against things. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, a number two of circumstances. You know, interruptions when you least want them. A expectations that aren't fulfilled that you think should have been taken care of. Uh, keys that just find some way hide themselves. You know, just when you're wanting to walk out the door. Uh, for us who speak, it's that illustration. We know we've got it somewhere. We just can't find it when we need it most. Uh, circumstances beyond our control. But sometimes, like at Philippi, and sometimes like in a marriage, it can be people. can be what you think cause you to uh, have like a styrofoam cup of joy and somebody stuck a pin in the bottom of it and drained your joy out of your styrofoam cup of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. In case you missed it, he said, again, I say what? Rejoice. Uh, number two, play by the rules. Play by the rules. This is the word relate. I'll, I'll tell you where I get this word. But Howard Hendricks put it this way. He said, people get married with a picture in their minds of a perfect marriage. Then after a few trials, they discover they're not married to a perfect picture, but an imperfect person. And when this realization occurs... You've got two options, he says. You'll either tear up the picture or you'll tear up the person. Paul says this, let your gentle spirit, forbearing spirit, be made known to all men. The Lord is near. If this is true in a context of ministry, it's true in a context of marriage, it's true in a context of family, work, or even in a context of uh, other relationships. Uh, the word forbearing spirit here is a very fascinating word. It, it literally means, there's, there's a, a word group here that means that the quality of making allowances despite facts that might suggest reason for a different reaction. 
See, it's going the unexpected route rather than the expected route. Another aspect of this is not insisting on every right of letter of the law. In other words, I know I'm right. It's not a forbearing spirit. A gentle spirit. Quiet answer turns away wrath, the Bible says. And then he says this, God is watching. The Lord is near. Stands near, has come near, stays near. He's watching. It's a reminder of accountability, but I think it's also, in this context, a reminder that uh, we're to be merciful because God is merciful. See, that was in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who extend mercy receive mercy. Those who judge will be judged. In the same way you judge others, you yourself will be judged. God has the incredible sovereign capacity to use your sense of judgment on you. And that's scary. That's scary. It's just. It's God's discipline. But he says, uh, you need to learn how to relate. So not only do you accept the challenge, but you're to play by the rules of relationship. I heard a speaker once say, bitterness is drinking the poison and then waiting for the other person to die. (laughs) That's pretty graphic, isn't it? It's drinking the poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die. Often, our sense of bitterness that comes out of not only the lack of a forbearing spirit, but the lack of a forgiving spirit, is the other person sometimes is absolutely oblivious to everything we feel. And we're in the prison of our own emotions. And they're just happy-go-lucky. And that bothers you more. So you take another swig of poison. Breaking the cycle of resentment and retaliation. One writer put it this way, many a spouse has entered into marriage with high hopes and dreams only to see those dreams skewed by the harsh realities of marital conflict. At this point, the husband, the wife, or even both are faced with a decision that will affect them for the rest of their lives. Will they continue to act according to their feelings of bitterness and anguish, or will they find a way to work through their problems and their disagreements? If a husband or a wife chooses the former instead of the latter, they are, in a sense, choosing to drink the poison of bitterness. And through their bitter words, sarcastic comments, disrespectful attitudes, aimed at one another, they'll ultimately end up hurting themselves and, unfortunately, also their children. We've all experienced it or watched it in other people's lives as well. So I want you to keep your finger here and turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 because Paul elsewhere gives us some rules for relating with a forbearing spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, some very practical things. Number one, He says, when you're in the middle of the conflict, he says, uh, you're going to get angry, but that doesn't mean you have to sin. Be angry, but don't sin. Now, James says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So what he's talking about here is the difference between the emotional rush that comes to you in that heat of the moment and your willingness or your ability to restrain your willingness to act on that anger that ultimately doesn't achieve God's righteousness and ultimately causes you to sin. Hitchhiking on Barry's message last night, if you don't think you still have that issue, 
When somebody cuts in front of you on the freeway, what's your first emotion? I dare say it's not the ironic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Now, that, that, that adrenaline rush of emotion, that, that, that fight, flight, or, or flee mentality that comes, there, there, there is a, an adrenaline that comes and, and there's a reaction that's there. The question is, do you let it move into sin or not? There, there is a command that when there is anger that comes, there is a command, don't let it go into sin. Recognize the emotion may be there. You may not even know why you have the emotion. But recognize the difference between the emotion and the volition to follow it up is an important piece of counsel. Be angry, but don't sin. Number two, in verse 26, it says the time limit for a Christian fight is bedtime. That's when it stops, that's when the whistle blows. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, keep in mind, we've got electric lights that allow us to keep fighting a lot longer. But in the Middle East, when the sun went down, it was bedtime. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Fix it before nightfall. Not for the magic of the night. That's not the issue. The, the beauty of it is, if you fix it tonight, you wake up tomorrow clean and fresh. And you don't have an issue. When Barbie and I were counseling a young couple who was in one of the churches I had the privilege of pastoring, and I've had the privilege of being an associate pastor, interim pastor in four different churches, and a senior pastor at a church over the course of about 20 years alongside of our teaching, we, we met with this young couple, and they'd been married seven years and had never learned to fix an argument. Never learned to fix an argument. Kids were suffering. But it was like there was a, a most the proverbial brick wall that had been built up between them. So we asked them, well, what happens? Well, we just quit talking. After we fight, we quit talking. And sometimes it takes two weeks before we talk to each other. How, you know, what are those kids going to do with that? You know, and, and they were suffering, and we could see it. But there hadn't been an, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me, ever in seven years. They obviously went to bed many nights in a row without fixing it. When you fix it today, tomorrow is a brand new day. And there's freedom. Even if you have to stay up all night to fix it, do so. Early in our marriage, we stayed up a couple nights into the wee hours of the morning. We haven't had to do that for a long time. She's, she gets too tired. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> By God's grace, God's allowed Barbie and I to practice a lot of this. But it's true stuff. The, the, the limit of any Christian fight is bedtime. If you just grab a hold of that one, that'll change your life. Number three, the violation of these rules makes me vulnerable to Satan. See, notice what he says in verse 27. Don't give the devil an opportunity. He, he gets a foothold. We can get into an argument, can, can, can a Christian be demon-possessed or not? I don't worry about the demon aspect as much as I worry about the, the Satan is, is mentioned in multiple passages of personally being active in our lives. 
He can thwart the ministry. He can, he, he can uh, you know, uh, deceive. He can destroy. Uh, he, he can uh, uh, cause a, a couple, you know, to, to lose the perspective. In the bedroom, he talks about Satan getting an advantage because of uncontrolled passions that are not satisfied in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But here, he's just saying, fix it, because if you don't, the devil gets an opportunity. You're basically inviting the enemy of the soul into your life, whether it's marriage or a job or uh, at a ministry. You're inviting the enemy of God and the enemy of your soul to get a foothold in your life if you're not willing to fix it. To fix it. Number three. Number four. Number one was scripture tells us to be angry but not sin. Number two, the time limit for a Christian fight is bedtime. Number three, the violation of those rules makes me vulnerable to Satan. Number four has four parts to it. And this is remember the four C's for a Christian fight. Four C's. Number one, in Ephesians 4.29, no cussing. No cursing. I think it even goes beyond cursing, but he says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. No bad language. No bad language. It, it can wound the heart, can spear the soul. And uh, all of us know and have been on the recipient, if not the giving end of that, sometimes in our lives. I uh, wasn't a part of my issue, but I, uh, once in a while, I employ a part of the vehicle that uh, the manufacturer has uh, given us in the middle of the steering wheel. And uh, it was a few months ago that I was going in downtown Dallas, and uh, I had gotten in the wrong lane, and I was ready to, uh, you know, it was a turn left lane, and I didn't know it was a turn left lane, and so the guy next to me was going straight, which he should have, but uh, uh, he went on, and I thought he was in the wrong, and I was really in the wrong, and I honked at him. He stopped his car, he got out, and he started beating on my hood. And he called me, uh, uh, not a Sunday school name. He was livid, unwholesome word, intimidating. Now my hood on my car, I have a, a Toyota 4Runner, and uh, when I drive, it just bounces. It just vibrates, and Barbie says, that's God's reminder, don't do that again. <laughs> I asked him how much it would be to fix that, because I wanted to get rid of that, and the guy said, $1,500. I said, I think I'll let it bounce for a little while longer. Unwholesome word. It could be a marriage, it could be a community, it could be a church. It's wounding. No cursing, no cussing. Number two, only use words that are constructive. This is the third, uh, second C. But he says, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but such as is what? Notice what he says. But such as is good for edification. You know what Paul tells us? This is really convicting, and I didn't want to be the only one convicted, so I'm sharing it with you. The speech that we ought to have when we get into those kinds of conflicts is only speech that will build up rather than tear down. 
the other person. You and I all know the difference between uh, disciplining our kids out of our own interest or disciplining the kids for their interest. You know what? They're four years old. They're going to run and scream, even if the news is on. And uh, it was a good heart check and a gut check when our kids were young to ask, am I, am I disciplining them for me or am I disciplining them for them? When we get into these kinds of things, even adult to adult, is this word self-protective for me, or is this word constructive for them? Does it build up or does it tear down? Number three, keep it current. This will fix a lot of it. Notice what he says, but such as is good for the moment, See, no unwholesome word, but such as is a word that is good for edification, according to the need of the moment. Is this the real issue? <laughs> what are we fighting about? This? And usually the answer is, no, not just this. It's a buildup. But if you know unwholesome word, it has to only be constructive, and it has to stay current. This has to be the only issue we're talking about. That'll fix things in a hurry. It's great protection. It's current. And finally, does it contribute grace? Does it contribute grace? See, this comes back to the forbearing spirit. Because he goes on to talk about, but such as is good for the moment, such as is good for the moment, so that it will give grace. What is grace? You know the definition. You've been around long enough. Grace is what? Getting what I don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. But see, if it's grace, it's, it's undeserved gift. They don't deserve it. They're in a spat with you. <laughs> they don't deserve it. They've said bad things about you. They've been a fly in your ointment for all of your work and all of your life or all of your marriage or all of your ministry, does it contribute grace to them? Why? Because that's what God's given to us. He finishes that little section, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Watch this. Even as God, watch this one, for Christ's sake has forgiven you. There's a good echo from last night, isn't it? No cussing has to be constructive, has to stay current, has to contribute grace. First word, rejoice. Second word is relate. Third word, back to Philippians chapter 4, is request. Say, how am I going to deal with this? Good question. So what he tells us then is to go back and to let your requests be made known unto God. See, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Notice the full orb nature of the prayer. Prayer by itself is simply recognizing that uh, God's view about life is the right view. See, God's view is the right view. Petition 
has a past, present, and future, I may need to petition God for past issues, forgiveness. I, I may, in, in confession of sin, in the present, I may need to ask God for guidance, but, but my, my, my future petition is the hope that God has given me for the future. Petition can go all the way across the spectrum. And when I get God's view, and when I've dealt with past, present, and future perspectives, then I'm in a, in a position to be thankful in my praise. God says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. So let me ask you a question. What's the number one thing you ought to worry about in your marriage? The answer is nothing. What's the number one thing you need to worry about on your job? The answer should be nothing. What's the number one worry you should have for your kids? I don't mean your prayer request for your kids, but your anxiety and your worry. The answer is nothing. It's the same answer. Be anxious for, say it. Yeah. Well, I'm not anxious. I'm just overly concerned. Deeply disturbed. The Bible speaks to it, doesn't it? Take it to the Lord. See, accept the challenge, play by the rules, take it to the Lord. That's request, take it to the Lord. And finally, he says, enjoy the peace. Can I give you another R word? Relax. Relax. Be at rest, oh my soul. Be at rest. How do you enjoy the peace of God? Number one, what's the origin of peace? What do you say? In the peace of God. I love what Jesus said in that upper room discourse. Chapter 14, verse 27 of John, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Watch this. Not as the world gives do I give to you. See, this isn't uh, just the absence of stress or the absence of danger. It's, this is a peace that is unnatural. This is a peace that's beyond psychological uh, equilibrium. This is a peace that only comes from God. And what is a kind of peace is it? It's a boggle the mind kind of peace. It's a garrison the heart kind of peace. Because he says in the peace of God that surpasses understanding. See, supernatural peace that uh, supersedes human understanding is available for the person who will... Uh, walk their way through this kind of a passage and allow God to work their way through this kind of truth. It'll boggle the mind. <laughs> peace in the midst of uh, loss. Peace in the midst of conflict. Peace in the midst of danger, tragedy, sorrow. Talking with Dick over the table the other day, yesterday, or the day before. We've all had experiences in our families or in ministry where we've watched funerals of uh, believers and we've watched funerals of unbelievers. And it's night and day difference. Night and day difference. My sister-in-law, Grace, is here with us this year. And it was uh, about a year and six months or so ago, 
her hubby who pastored a church in Carney's Point, New Jersey, went to be with the Lord after a prolonged illness. But I'll never forget, they got up in front of their church in those days of uh, difficulty, and uh, one of Jerry's refrains that has ministered deeply to Barbie and me is, uh, God has done us no wrong. God has done us no wrong. That'd be inconsistent with his character. And that's why there can be a peace in the midst of the storm. Peace of God boggles the mind, kind of peace, and it garrisons the heart. The word will guard your heart has the idea of God stationing sentinels <laughs> at periodic places around the heart to protect the heart. Accept the challenge and rejoice about it. Uh, play by the rules. Le learn to relate. Take it to the Lord. He just asks us to ask. And then enjoy the peace. Relax in him. I love what... Uh, one writer said, as he put it this way, and I close, Jim Creighton called it this way. He's an expert in conflict resolution. And he said, it's a myth that happy couples never fight. But what sets loving couples apart is that they disagree in loving ways. If you and I could learn to walk through interpersonal conflict with our kids, with our mates, with our jobs, with our ministries, with our community, and we do it God's way. It's the loving way. It's the best way to get through it and survive it. And there's something about couples who have learned to do this, who have a much happier time in their later years, and look forward to those times together rather than wonder, what'll happen when so-and-so retires? Are you gonna want him home or not? By God's grace, so far she wants me home. <laughs> Having been a pastor for 20 years and in seminary education, college and then seminary education for over 40, I can tell you this is true stuff. It's true stuff. And the human capital that gets spent on unresolved conflict is expensive. Time, emotion, turmoil. Would to God that we would just learn to fix it God's way. Let's pray. Father, part of this passage was about two ladies who needed to get it put back together. They were valuable and had shared in the struggle of ministry with Paul. Their names are written in the book of life. They're going to be there forever. They needed to fix it because it had a testimony that reverberated from Philippi all the way to that prison cell in Rome, and it grieved the Apostle Paul. 
We don't know who the comrade was that he had in mind. We have all kinds of ideas. But I love the fact he sort of just left it to one of them. Would you help fix them? It's our responsibility to help resolve conflict. And we are reminded with great sobriety that when Jesus gave the attitudes that are to be about our lives, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. Because we're most like your son when we're helping reconcile relationships. Help us never to forget you intend a fellowship of faithfulness in our marriages, in our families, with our kids. Father, help us as parents or grandparents, if there's been a conflict, to get on our knees beside the bed or the chair of those little ones and say, would you forgive me? I didn't do it God's way. Our kids and our grandkids need to hear us confess and get it right with you. So we model for them how to get it right. Father, we as parents, adults, co-workers, partners, ministry, marriage, family, jobs, community, we're living in a hostile environment where unchecked words have divided our country, have divided families, because of the verbiage that's unresolved, unkind, wrong words, wrong attitudes, wrong behaviors. And we live in a tear-down society rather than a build-up society. And we're suffering the consequences across the board. Churches have been split. Ministries have been ruined. Politics has become poison. United no longer is a good term for our country. Lord, would you do a work in our lives and help us to be a light to the world that so desperately needs to see the difference that you can make. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.